Hello and welcome to another edition of The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and I'm still in mourning because in a moment that genuinely shocked the world of football and generally shocked me, Jurgen Klopp, Liverpool FC's manager since 2015, announced on Friday that he would leave the club at the end of the season. I realise my resources are not endless, he said. We're not young rabbits anymore and we don't jump as high as we did. I have to make the decision at one point because nobody else will. I cannot do it on three wheels. Klopp won admiration for his frankness about the toll that senior management takes on you and how only you can make the decision to go. And it raised the question here in our office, how come so few politicians know how to act like Klopp and quit when they're ahead? Mm. Here to help me with this is a man who maybe knows a little bit more about the history of politics <laughs> than he does about football, but that's yep. fine. Oh God, what now regular and bunker regular Seth Tavo. Hello, Seth. Hello. So it is surprising, isn't it, how few senior politicians you know, quit leaving the country or their particular particular remit in good shape. Enoch Powell did not say all political lives end in failure for nothing, did he? No, that's absolutely right. And I think um, even politicians who've said, I am definitely, definitely standing down by this date, find all sorts of creative reasons to hang on for power just a little bit longer. Yeah. Is it because sort of resignation in politics is but it's both linked with failure rather than linked with a good job completed. And also the pace of politics kind of indicates that if a person has shown even the slightest inclination to disappear, they're immediately damaged goods and they better be bounced. Yeah, it's actually quite sad speaking to retired politicians, you know, especially if, if they've uh, been turfed out of office, one minute being at the centre of power, making these decisions. And the next minute, nobody wants to interview them. Nobody wants to quote them or ask their opinion on anything. Um, actually, I, I saw quite a good play recently. It was um, a new play based on Yes Minister, right. looking at the two characters, Jim Hacker and Sir Humphrey, in retirement. And what happens when they have dementia and when they are no longer in power and missing being at the centre of it all? Oh, God, that sounds really poignant yeah. because the idea that – I mean, because there was a real-life analogy to that, wasn't it, in the um, – Margaret Thatcher's, we'll talk about her a little bit later, but mm. her post-office life when effectively her old colleagues more or less kind of pretended it was all still happening, kind of constructed a world of meetings and decisions. You, you get that a bit. I mean, a, a funny thing is if you go to the LBJ presidential library in mm. Texas, um, it's the only presidential library that has an Oval Office reconstruction that's not life-size, it's seven-eighth scale. And the reason is that in his retirement, LBJ liked sitting at the desk of this Oval Office but he wanted to be larger than life when greeting the tourists and to oh. dominate the room. Oh so he just God. subtly brought the scale down a bit. That's incredible. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about, uh, you know, in I'm in my late 50s, so I can remember the events of the 70s. I can remember Harold Wilson, hmm. surprisingly, in March 1976, yeah. just resigning as prime minister. He said, I have not wavered in this decision and it is irrevocable. And nobody seemed to know why did mm. did he? Well, firstly, did was he quitting while he was ahead? Because that's not my memory, even as a kid. It's still something that historians disagree about. I think the most plausible explanation is that there were certainly signs of Alzheimer's already then. And Wilson, who had been an economist by background, he had a super sharp memory. He really knew figures, facts off the top of his head, and he was aware, even though he may not have known the full scale of it. He knew I'm I'm not getting this. He also said I'm getting bored. The same problems are coming around. You know. He'd been Labour leader since 1963. He'd been Prime Minister on and off for 12 years at that time. And so he just got to a stage where he, he thought, well, I've, I've 
I've given it all I've, I've got. He'd been an MP for 31 years as well, hasn't he? Yeah. And he was only 60, because I remember as a kid, you know, obviously people, older people seemed older in those days, <laughs> but he, he he looked and seemed like an old guy. Well, he, he liked his scotch and cigars, and I think it showed. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said he was resigning to allow others into the job and that there were no hidden reasons for his resignation, which is surprising because no clear reasons were given. There was the kind of conspiracy story that, you know, the, the idea of the Wilson plot that yeah. MI5 officers were supposedly conspiring against him. What do we know about that? Yeah, I mean, Francis Ween writes about this particularly well because there is this insane idea that you have these rogue right wing elements within the security services who are convinced that Harold Wilson is some kind of communist plant, a sleeper agent, uh, reporting to Moscow, and that they've been plotting to get rid of him all through this time. Um, and the maddest thing about this bonkers conspiracy theory is that that about a decade later, they realised it's all true. <laughs> Not that he was Not a spy, that was a KGB. No, but that there were you know, actually very right-wing elements within the security services. But the crucial caveat to that is they don't seem to have ever acted on this or done anything. It seems to have been limited to a few conversations in sort of hushed corners of, you know, we could launch a military coup. Would uh, Earl Mountbatten be willing to uh, chair a government of national unity? These kinds of conversations did happen. But, you know, it was people who'd had a few drinks too many rather than... Anything yeah, serious. time to impress the James Goldsmith, that kind of yeah. thing, after a few large gins. <laughs> um, just back to that question, though, was, I mean, uh, the question of whether he really did quit leaving things in a better shape than, mm. than when he started. Industrial relations and inflation were quite shocking in the mid-70s, as we all know. Britain was still suffering from the devaluation of the pound in 1967. Mm. Did Wilson have a decent record to look back upon? There is an argument that it was not a bad time to go because, uh, as you say, the economic state was pretty dire. But there was a sort of lull and Wilson was aware and certainly would have been aware that things were going to get a lot worse in the very near future. So it was a matter of leave now whilst things can't be pinned on me. Yeah. Um, the thing is, Wilson doesn't seem to have gone on to do very much after that. You know, unlike someone like Tony Blair, we can come on to, uh, you know, who does, does have this prime ministerial career, which is interesting for all sorts of other reasons. Wilson, like a lot of these people, says, I'm going to do many great things. Well, he writes a couple of not terribly good ghost-written books. And he actually has his own chat show for a while, which is so bad it only runs the three episodes. I'd completely forgotten yeah. that. Was it, was it, what, on which channel? Um, on the BBC. It was. Uh, he, he was guest presenting Saturday night and Sunday morning, was it? And uh, yeah, he, he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I mean, he <laughs> chatted to Glendon Jackson and uh, Tom yeah, Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck and things. It was the kind of time he was doing Morecambe and Wise a lot. And so people were asking, you know, should we have a prime minister clowning around like this? And the bottom line is I think he was just lost like a lot of these uh, people out of office are. Yeah. Before we move on, I have to note one wonderful thing from uh, Wilson's official biographer, Philip Ziegler, mm. who noted uh, that uh, Wilson had become so cautious thinking about the possibility of this security services plot. In the lavatory at number 10, the Prime Minister pointed at the electric light fitting and made an exaggerated gesture of caution, putting his finger to his lips and indicating that confidential talk would be unsafe. Wilson really was paranoid in those last few years, and there, there is an element of that, you know, particularly with the whole sort of spy plot thing. You know, there was some, there was no smoke without fire there, but he would randomly call journalists up and tell them, um, "I may." slip you the old fact, if you see a blind beggar that you've had a phone call from me telling you to kick him outside Charing Cross Station, uh, I like to think of myself as the spider in the corner of the room, carefully weaving his web. This is what he actually told two journalists What's the kind of the Mycroft Holmes vision of himself. <laughs> so he really was starting to lose it, I think, as well. 
Good Lord. Uh, well, let's move on to Tony Blair, which was the mm. precise opposite, because this was the longest goodbye since Frank Sinatra. <laughs> uh, said he would resign within a year in mid-2006. There's been speculation about the timetable for ages. Labour MPs are calling for his resignation. His, his reputation was somewhat in decline after Iraq. Yeah. And eventually he resigned in June 2007 to be replaced by Gordon Brown. Now, there had been an informal deal, hadn't there, that Brown would get a go mm. once, but like, like it was... Like it was, I don't know, a bike or something. Yeah. I, it, it might turn for a go. Do agreements like that ever work? Because quite apart from the, the simple matter of they don't look very democratic. Mm. Well, firstly, it was entirely in secret. <laughs> so it, you can't enforce something like that. And also it's how long is a piece of string. I mean, there's actually some disagreements as to how long Blair said he would give Gordon Brown, you know, whether it was I will do eight years as Labour leader or eight years as prime minister. I will do a term as prime minister or two, you know, and, and there are stories of Gordon Brown yelling at him, shouting, you ruined my life. We don't know how true that <laughs> is, but <laughs> it's, it's a pretty thankless task. Winston Churchill used to say that what he called a uh, very unflattering fag-end premierships tend to be extremely uh, unglamorous and tend to end in failure. And, you know, since we're currently on our third or fourth fag-end premiership yeah. in this government... Well, I did it, I heard Rishi Sunak referred to as a tail-end Charlie, as in, yeah. you know, phenomenally antiquated expression, but like mm. you're at the end of this this, this declining procession. But back to, back to Blair. Yeah. Um, did that period, that year or so, mm. when it's like, I'm going, I'm leaving mm. eventually. Was Blair a lame duck prime minister in that period? Partly, but I, I think that was of his own making for several reasons. I mean, one you touched on in saying Iraq, and actually that meant that from about 2003 onwards, the knives were out for him from his own side. You know, that was where a lot of the pressure yeah. was. But also, he does this really weird thing, which I don't think any prime minister has ever done. I, I think party leaders in opposition that are in trouble have done this before then, which is you announce loads of time before you're due to quit that you're going to quit. Yeah. So in a different culture, like, say, the United States, where they have uh, term limits, and you know that somebody's not going to be running for a third term as president. So they're basically a lame duck for the whole of at least the last two years of their presidency. Here, Blair was making himself a lame duck because in 2006, he announced publicly yeah. in a year's time, which is kind of like gambling that people will wait rather than, you know, actually oust you for a few months. People will say, well, what's it all worth? Yeah. And also the, the, the least suspense ever, because there was no doubt whatsoever of who was going to succeed him. Mm. I can't even think if there was a, a... Were there any realistic contenders? Uh... All the realistic contenders ended up withdrawing before the contest. So there was some talk that um, Charles Clark might stand. There was some talk that uh, Alan Milburn might stand. They both said that the sort of operation, the dirty tricks people around Brown, not Brown himself, but the sort of Damien McBrides of this world, yeah. made things so unpleasant they weren't going to go for it. And the one person who tried to stand against Brown was um, John McDonnell, but he couldn't get enough support amongst Labour MPs. How strange, considering how things played out <laughs> subsequently. Was there a more opportune moment for, for Blur to go that might have secured uh, a little bit more of his reputation because, I mean, as you know, I'm quite a fan. Mm. Not everybody in our organisation is so much of a mm. fan as me, but he certainly kind of dragged it out. Had there been a more opportune moment for him to go? There's always something to be said for leaving people wanting more. I think if he'd left actually a year after his re-election and just done five years in total, 97 to 2002, people would say, my God, he packed a huge amount of reform in. He really got a lot done and he could have gotten so much more done if he'd stuck around. Are you exercising the hindsight there that's effectively <laughs> saying if he'd resigned a yeah, minute I'm, before the Iraq war, everybody would think he was great? That, that was your question. So yeah. I'm absolutely exercising <laughs> hindsight there. Yeah.
It should Brown himself have quit while he was ahead because the two defining mm. moments of Brown's medium-length premiership were obviously the financial crisis, yeah. when he was kind of incredible, yeah. but there was also the bottled election of the autumn of 2007 where we were kind of on the very lip of having a general election. Everybody believed it was mm. going to happen. It would have done two things. He probably would have won it, and also it would have cemented the idea that when you change prime ministers without an election, you have an election as quickly as possible. That is a hindsight point, but yes, absolutely. I, I think if he had uh, done that, things would have turned out very differently because you had to take a lot of unpopular decisions in a recession. And Gordon Brown would have been able to actually spend the five years taking that hit straight after his re-election mm. rather than um, you know constantly being half in election mode all through 2008, 2009, easy about to call an election. And so the result is it's actually quite plausible that a general election Gordon Brown would have called in you know 2012-ish, I mean, hung parliament with Labour as the largest party might have been a conceivable thing. It, it's yeah. not necessarily true that the Tories would have won that. Yeah, I mean, um, you, can, you, you can see a timeline where there's a general election in 2007 and therefore, there's no coalition in 2010 and the pressures of the internal European uh, John Major's bastards, as, as they were once known. We'll talk about them in a minute too. And maybe there's no Brexit. But that's the pressure that comes from the unknown. Because Gordon Brown actually followed the conventional wisdom of most prime ministers, which is it's a massive gamble taking an early election. Why on earth would you do it? We have one prime minister in recent history who's done exactly that, who gambled everything and couldn't lose. Yeah. And that was Theresa May in 2017 and she lost her majority. So you can see why there was this fear at the back of Gordon Brown's mind thinking, I've waited 10 years for this. I'm yeah. not going to throw it away. That decision reportedly uh, haunted Brown. Patrick Windsor and Nicholas Watts wrote in The Guardian. It marked a watershed in public perceptions of Brown and represents the biggest unforced political error in the history of New Labour. But I, I presume they're including Iraq there. Um, yeah. it, it, it's, <laughs> you know... The, you know, in hindsight, you know, he kind of he lost his momentum. He lost his chance to portray himself as a new a new figure and a new broom. He also lost his chance to, you know, impress personal authority. Yeah. And he lost the chance for the idea that there'd be a sort of progressive force of British politics as the main governing party. Yeah. The one sideline to that is that Brown's government was very much running on fumes. A lot of the best people had risen up under Blair, quit politics at a certain stage. Um Blair's victory, of course, was over John Major, who himself was accused of hanging on forever. The theme tune to this podcast should be You Keep Me Hanging On, shouldn't yeah, yeah. it? Um, but Major had won a honeymoon election in 1992, much to everyone's surprise, and then was immediately plunged into, into Black Monday and his, his government never recovered. Was there ever a quit while you're ahead moment for Major or was, in fact, 1992? Was that... I'm not so sure because um, in the background of this is vanity and the constant cry you'll hear from political leaders, only I can hold things together. And actually, there's a good case, for example, for Harold Wilson having held together the Labour Party when yeah. it could have split in the early 70s. And John Major is a very good example of someone who did hold the Tory party together. You know, he has that um, leadership contest in 95, which is yeah. entirely self-inflicted. Which everybody forgets and yeah. was insane, where the Prime Minister resigns as leader of the Conservative Party, says, back me or sack me, goes up against the bastards, mm. wins, yep. head bastardist John Redwood, <laughs> who campaigns. I, could, I completely forgot this. He ran on the slogan of no change, no chance. And his poster said, save your seat, save your party and save your country. That kind of rings a bell with now, doesn't it? Yes, but the difference is that John Major set himself a target to get the support of more than three quarters of Tory MPs, and he did that. Mm. I don't know whether Rishi Sunak would do that today. 
Yeah, well, I mean, trying to take the longer and longer view of this, it does look like maybe that is normal for the Conservative Party. Maybe the the reign of Margaret Thatcher and the kind of the reign of uh, David Cameron, they're the aberrations. And what's normal is permanent regicide, permanent weak leadership. Where it gets different for the Tories is that up until 2001, they still only really needed to care about the support of MPs. That was it. That was how you became Tory leader. Ever since William Hague's reforms in making them a democratic party and having a ballot of the membership, the views of the Tory membership are quite interesting. They Let's are, put it they? that way. Yes, time to end the disastrous democratic experiment. <laughs> um, one thing that kind of has leapt out for me from a few of these examples is that by the time you're wondering if it's too late, mm. it's definitely too late. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you've always passed the event horizon a lot earlier yeah. than you think you have. And in John Major's case, the kind of final two years of that government are just mired in scandal, ill-discipline, a party that's completely out of control, events that are completely out of control, and you're clearly up against a new rising leader, a new rising party that's got success and the future written all over it, and you look like the past. Yeah. Could John Major ever have said, you know, could he have said in the middle of 1995, I've just won the leadership contest and I'm going to the country, the economy's on the way back? I suppose he could have in that his whole pitch for 97 was actually um, the basis of, of the turnaround. It was the economy. Um, if you want a better example of somebody who actually turns things around really successfully, I'd look at Canada and I'd look yeah. at Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau. Because Pierre Trudeau was prime minister on and off almost from uh, 67 to 84. And he basically is pretty tired by 79. He's been continuously in power for 12 years. But then the unexpected happens. Uh, There's a snap election, which he loses. uh, And he's in the process of having a new leader of the Liberal Party elected to succeed him when a new snap election happens less than six months later. And he's prime minister again. And he gets a second wind in this second term uh, from 79 to 84. And there does reach a point, finally, when he's he's passed the Constitution of Canada, the modern constitution they have today. But he reaches a point after that where he just says, I took a walk in the snow and thought, I've done it. I've I've given it all I've got. Yeah. I've been there for 17 years. I'm done. That, that is quite Klopp-esque, isn't yeah. it? Just have, have, have a moment of clarity. Well, from that to the opposite of moments of clarity, Margaret Thatcher, forced out in 1990 after part of the endless row over Europe. You know, people, it's a funny old world. It's a funny old world. People tend to remember, people tend to sort of reformulate it in the memories of, oh, well, it was the poll tax riots, wasn't it? It absolutely wasn't. It was Europe and it was her resistance to the momentum towards a, a, a single currency. There'd been a steady onslaught of attacks, chipping away of her, her authority. Geoffrey Howe resigns. There's, who was the stalking horse candidate? Sir Anthony Mayor. Sir Anthony Mayor. Hesseltine also launches mm. a leadership bid and eventually she pulls out. Of, the, of standing in the balance. Having said, I fight on, I fight to win, 24 hours later, wasn't it? She, she, <laughs> she, she didn't fight on. She withdrew. <laughs> um, again, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm asking the same question. When was Margaret Thatcher's quit when you're ahead moment that she clearly missed? Probably straight after the 87 election. Um, yep. There were people in her own party who didn't think she'd manage it for a third term. Uh, they basically bought that election with a whole number of campaign finance violations that are quite interesting in hindsight. <laughs> but um, having done that, it was a case of, well, what are we going to do now? And you know, Thatcher's ideological stance at the end of her premiership is a lot more puritanical than at the beginning. Um, and she's starting to alienate her own supporters. Yeah. Well, they do say you get more right wing as you get older. <laughs> um, yeah, because my memory of her is, is 
having to be prized out of number 10, mm. almost with a shoehorn. She, she was talking about doing at least two more terms well into the late 90s. Yes. We have become a grandmother. Yes. <laughs> um, and I wondered whether, you know, considering the reverence in which the Conservative Party holds her and also the kind of horror that they have for her later years where she became a bit of a mad auntie, both both I, revered and slightly I don't know. If, if you it. speak to the sort of Thatcher fetish fan club within the Tory party today, the late years really are sort of held up as pure Thatcher, Thatcher in her element. And so it's really quite alarming how much yeah. that's become. I mean, this is where the whole UKIP mindset comes from. So they really, they really like her later stuff. Yeah. The reverse hipsters. <laughs> a couple more examples. Jacinda Ardern resigned in 2023 simply citing burnout. Very good. Very sensible. Are we more accepting of kind of mental health and well-being now? That maybe a, a leader in the early 70s who said, I'm burning out and this is this is uh, destroying me would be seen as a kind of tragic and weak figure? We, we weren't even talking about mental health a few decades ago, so absolutely. And, you know, if, if we'd um, had a conversation about Churchill in his comeback years in the 1950s and said, the prime minister has had repeated strokes, he's starting to go senile. Yes. This is probably a good time to bow out with some dignity maybe a year or two before he actually did quit. And also the Prime Minister suffers from depression, which now we would view in a completely different yeah. prison. But instead, it's kind of uh, jocular references to the black dog right. and, um, you know, drinking your way through the war. Or the, the, hitting the bottle in a big way is seen as more forgivable than being depressed. Yeah. One great example that was considered to be quite admirable was when Labour's Education Secretary Estelle Morris quit in 2002, saying, I have not done the job as well as I should have done. She also said I was not good at dealing with the modern media. This was, this, this was laudably honest. Mm. Do, you, do we need a bit more of that? Definitely. I mean, I, I remember that caused a lot of surprise because most people thought, I thought Estelle Morris was actually quite good as Education yeah, Secretary. Well, <laughs> look at what came afterwards. Exactly. You kind of think, you know. <laughs> she wasn't Michael Gove. Yes. But it's quite hard to bring that into contemporary politics where, particularly on the Conservative side, it seems that it's governed by the rules of The Apprentice. You know, everybody has to stand up and say, I give it 110%, Sir Alan, and wear a horrible suit. And that's considered to be evidence of fitness for the position. But it's not like applying for a job and the vacancy comes up and then you go for it and you've got a convenient start date. It literally is you wrestle someone to the ground for that job, which yeah. you've taken them from. Do you think it's harder to apply the lessons of quitting while you're ahead to a world of politics that is accelerating. Things seem to happen faster. Rishi Sunak has never been, you know, able to quit while he's ahead because he's never been ahead. Liz, Tr Liz Truss mm. wasn't in long enough for any of these questions to arise. We just seem to be accelerating. Yes, and actually the main symptom is that political careers are shortening. So people are done with politics often after only eight or nine years. Yeah. And you know, they can be party leader or prime minister within five years. Almost. It's it's insane, the, the shortness, not only of parliamentary experience, but actually that goes hand in hand with the shortness of life experience. Because yeah. we like people who are young, who are energetic. So we actually like people who haven't been doing anything very much for very long. And there's been much more of an emphasis on, oh, you were chancellor, never mind the fact that you were chancellor for about five minutes. Yeah. The person who organises the cenotaph is who I feel sorry for mm. because we're going to have so many ex-prime ministers. It's going to be a very long but line. Think of the certainty because we know that Liz Truss will be there for at least the next 50 years. I think this is going to be a brilliant thing, actually. I think it's going to be a kind of political memento mori in that even 
people who are now 10 years old, who in 20 years' time are in politics, they'll have seen the senators have, they go, who is that woman? Why is she there? And a wise old person, well, that's a woman called Liz Truss. And let me tell you what happened to her. And the kid's face will just blanch in terror at what can happen to you. But as Andy Warhol almost said, everybody can be prime minister for 47 days. Good old Andy Warhol. Finally, the full quote from Enoch Powell, who we don't quote very often on these podcasts, no, for jolly good reasons. What he actually said was, all political lives, unless they are cut off in midstream at a happy juncture, end in failure, because that is the nature of politics and of human affairs. Should the wise politician wish to fall down dead after their greatest achievement? Weirdly, that's what Winston Churchill often said he wanted to do. He said, I want to die making a speech in the House of Commons. And that's why he clung on until the age of 89 as an MP. But he didn't actually make a single speech in the 10 years after he ceased to be prime minister. Really? Yeah. yeah. Ill health. Amazing. Seth, thanks for joining us for this fascinating and illuminating... And depressing sometimes. And depressing. Well, look, they're politicians. They deserve little sympathy. Yeah. Um, listeners, thanks for listening. You know we are in this for the long haul and we'll not be surprised quitting on you. But you can help to keep us at it by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. The bunker doesn't pay for itself. We've got producers and researchers to keep fed and watered. And like Jürgen Klopp, we try to keep a happy boot room. So please do consider supporting us for as little as £3 a month. You'll be keeping us proudly independent and you'll get lots of perks too. I'm Andrew Harrison and I have a surprise announcement to make. I will not leave the club. Thank you <laughs> listeners. Thank you Seth. And thank you Jürgen. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Group editor Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, the producer was Eliza Davis-Beard, and audio production was by me, Simon Williams. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.